0: Good day, good evening, and good screaming. We're switching hats now, but it's the same guest down from Noir Alley, uh, their host and good friend, Eddie Muller. And let's start round two here. Yeah, let's call it round two. Your father wrote about boxing. (laughs) That's right, round two. For the San Francisco Examiner, round two, Noir Alley, your show on Turner Classic Movies. Thing I liked was uh, the if you told me a couple years in that part of the reason they hired you. Was because they wanted to attract a younger demographic to watch Turner Classic Movies, and the minute you were hired, you were the oldest host at TCM because Robert Osborne wasn't there anymore.
1: Yeah, well that uh, that is true. I mean, I, I, obviously they hired Ben Mankiewicz because Ben was supposed to be the young the young counterpart to Robert Osborne, and um, and then it, it's. This is a weird thing, Jello, and not a lot of people are aware of this. But the day that I officially began on Turner Classic Movies, I think it was March 5th of 2000 and I'm going to say 17, 2017, um, was the day that Robert died, and um, which was just weird uh, because I remember distinctly getting a phone call that morning because originally I was only on on Sunday morning. And I got a phone call that morning from a colleague of mine at TCM, uh, Sean Cameron, and he said, uh, and I thought he was calling to say, congratulations on, you know, good job. You're welcome to the team. And he was calling to say that Robert had had just died. As you can imagine, it felt very weird because I, I know that I was part of the TCM team with Robert's blessing because I had known him. And uh, you know, really appreciated how good he was at his job. So while I know that it takes it now takes five of us t- to sort of do his job, because he was always the face of TCM. Yeah, it was a uh, it was a strange experience, but a, a good one. I'm I'm very very glad that I knew Robert, and he was a, a supporter of mine. I'm happy to say, and. You had they tried you
0: out earlier with a limited run one summer. I can't remember the name of that.
1: Yeah, As I think it was in two thousand. It was in two thousand and fifteen, and it was called the Summer of Darkness. It was the second edition of that. They had they had done one many years earlier, uh, like two thousand and two, I think it was, and that, that was a very interesting. Uh, experience, because I had written a book called Dark City Dames, where I had uh, introduced, I had interviewed uh, six actresses who were sort of synonymous with film noir. This was an outgrowth of my film festivals in Hollywood, really. And they contacted me that. so so TCM contacted me not because they wanted me but because they wanted the actresses. They wanted to know how to get in touch with the actresses and put them on this show uh that was the the original Summer of Darkness. And it was funny because I said, "Well, can I interview them since I know them all now?" And they were like, "No, you're nobody." So so initially they they wanted Alec Baldwin to interview them and they uh they ended up getting Scott Glenn. You may know the actor Scott Glenn. Not at all. Uh, He played uh, Alan Shepard in The Right Stuff, and he was in... uh, I mean, Scott Glenn's had a pretty good career. He was in Silence of the Lambs. He was Jodie Foster's uh, boss, FBI boss in Silence of the Lambs. And Anyway, uh, but he didn't really know much, so I kind of had to... I got paid as a consultant to write his questions and such. But then, lo and behold... Like 15 years later, I end up being being the on-camera host for this thing on TCM, and then that, that ended up leading to them offering me what they call the franchise, which is a, a weekly show on the network. Yeah, you've grown by leaps
0: and bounds from Noir Alley year one as far as, you know, delivery, comfort, camera presence and everything else. (laughs) And way leaps and bounds from Summer of Darkness where it didn't seem like they knew really what to do with you (laughs) or do with the host for the Summer of Darkness. It It was kind of like aqua behind you instead of darkness, for example. But, you know, you've gotten much, much, much better about that. Um, and you told me that you're the only one of the TCM hosts who's allowed to write their own
1: scripts. Uh that was may have been true at one point. It's not anymore. Uh Alicia okay. Alicia Malone also writes her own scripts, and it it's that has more to do with the amount of work we do than anything else. I mean, like like Ben Mankowitz is perfectly capable of writing his own scripts, but Ben does the yeoman's uh, amount of work on the network. So, where I will record, you know, f- I don't know, twelve or fourteen scripts in a couple of days. Ben has to do like thirty-five or something. So, th- th- there's no, there's no way that Ben is going to be able to to write all of his stuff as well. And and honestly, when we I started doing it, I said. I'm only going to do it if I can write my own scripts because I don't really want other, I don't want to mouth other people's words, you know? I I mean, it has to be authentic. It has to be what I actually think. So, how do I delicately say this? I wasn't paid initially for my abilities as a writer. They were just hiring somebody to say words whoever wrote them, right? And so I had to gracefully negotiate my contracts so that I felt like I was also being remunerated for my scripts, as well as my on-camera delivery of the scripts. So that, that's oh, where we're at now. And you, and you wrote
0: the scripts, but I assume you use a teleprompter.
1: I do. And uh, you know teleprompters are, are phenomenal now because they're right in front of the camera lens. And so where it looks like I'm staring like now, like right at the camera lens and talking, when I do this at TCM, I'm actually looking at my script, which is scrolling in front of the camera lens. It's it's fabulous, uh, fabulous technology. Of course, I do have a huge advantage in the fact that I wrote it all. (laughs) So it it sounds pretty natural, I think.
0: We may have Errol Morris to thank for inventing that Really? Because one time he was trying to get all kinds of quotes about the Oscars, you little five-second snippets, and they brought me down to a place where they shoot movie stuff in a big warehouse space in San Francisco, kind of south of Cesar Chavez. Mm -hmm. And um, it was weird. I can't... I think... Willie Brown, well, like, Jer- Willie Brown was on his way out the door, the mayor at the time, when I walked in. And when I walked out, Jerry Brown was on his way in. But, um, but Errol himself just came up right in my face with a camera. But then right above the lens was me. So I could just talk to me, basically, hmm. and have fun with that. And he, I, he told me that this was something new he had invented.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Well, I don't, see, I don't see me when I do this stuff because I, I actually can't deal with that. Right, you got the teleprompter. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. just looking at the words, but when, when we're on the set, I, I mean, they have these gigantic monitors that the directors and the cameramen and everybody are looking at because, because everything now is in HD, and so they're looking at every little incredible detail, and I don't want to have anything to do with that. You know, it's just like, I don't want to see myself. I don't want to, I just trust everybody. It's, it's just, you know. I'm very lucky to have a crew that takes care of everything. You know, the 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 makeup, the hair, the clothes, the yeah. whole thing. And like I, ju- I just I just have
0: to clothes. It's not yours then.
1: Um, all of the ties and all that stuff are mine. Um, a few of the suits are, but mostly they. I, I mean, I the the great thing Jello in doing this is when I go to Atlanta to record the shows, all of my stuff is there. It's just I have my own locker you know, at the studio. And so I don't have to pack anything when I go. It's just I wear the clothes on my back, literally, and, a, and an overnight kit. And I just go and I spend three days there or whatever. And all my clothes and wardrobe for the show are already there. So that that's fantastic. I love that. Not everybody's as quick at these as you are, from what I understand.
0: Uh, how do you mean quick? Meaning, meaning you get one movie done with one take or so, and then another one, and then another one, and then instead of like, no, 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 got to go back and do that again.
1: <laughs> well, I try. It's it's a it's a wonderful challenge to. I try to do every single one in one take, but um, but you don't. For ver- for various reasons, right. as you know, right. uh, you know, recording anything is like there's going to be screw-ups and the light yeah. fails, the sound fails, somebody drops something on the set. I never get angry with anybody, <laughs> right. you know, and then I screw up. And then there are all those wonderful outtakes where I'm like, fuck me, what else? I can't <laughs> believe I screwed that up, you know.
0: Oh, yeah, there's plenty of those of the stars you've hung out with, oh, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What Er, what Errol Morris did was he just wanted tales about the movies. It was all these people reminiscing about the movies to begin the Oscars. And so I, I finally figured, yeah, one of my favorite movie moments, and it was at the Castro Theater, was, and you can only experience this at the Castro Theater as it is now, they showed Mommy Dearest. Mommy Dearest at the Castro meant I was one of the few people in that sold-out theater who wasn't dressed as Joan Crawford. There was all these queens having the greatest time who knew every single line in the script, and they all yelled out, No wire hangers
1: ever!
0: (laughs) That was what got on that Oscars thing from Errol Morris was no wire hangers No wire
1: hangers, yeah.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, I oh, had a yeah. I had
1: a fabulous uh, time at the Castro. Uh my friend Mark Eustace did a show there of of uh, Mildred Pierce and had Anne Blythe, you know, who played oh, wow. who played Crawford's daughter. Uh God, I know, I know. And and Mark asked me to do the interview with Anne, and it was it was really uh an amazing Experience because Anne was a is a very devout, a uh, very religious woman, and she knew what she was getting into uh, in an auditorium. You know, with for, 1,400 uh, wildly effusive gay guys uh, who had an image of Joan Crawford that was not her image of Joan Crawford. <laughs> But she, she was fabulous. You know, she, she went along with it. And at, some, at one point, she totally knew that I was trying to give the audience what they were after by digging for some kind of dish on Joan Crawford. And Anne just said, look, I," with a smile, she said, I know exactly what you're doing. And you're not going to get that out of me because that's not the Joan Crawford that I knew. But but she was there. You know, she showed up and she put on a great show and she was a total professional. But it was like, don't ask me to say crap about Joan Crawford because I'm not. She treated me really well and she was a total professional. And it was a great experience. And it's one of my things I'm going to be most remembered for on film is playing her daughter in this movie. And and that was it, you know? And and everybody and went home an happy.
0: Evil daughter. Yes. she was really young. She was actually the age of the daughter when she played that role. Right? Ab-
1: absolutely. Uh, yes. And I'm I'm not entirely sure that Anne knew what she was doing, but she could play it. You know, she she was just totally obnoxious and uh, just, oh my god, yeah. that character. Didn't she get an Oscar nomination. Did she, she did. She, she did get nominated Oscar? for best supporting yeah. actress. Yes.
0: My only exposure to her before that was her Twinkies commercials in the mid to late 70s, where she had kind of a uh, now archaic kind of bouffant do and way too long false eyelashes and stuff about how much she liked Twinkies. And yeah. me and my hippie friends loved laughing over those hand <laughs> Blythe commercials. The, the other thing about that, Laura Alley, you've obviously gotten some cachet and some clout now because... You get to talk longer and more in depth about the movies you show than any of the other hosts do. And now there's often pictures of even the writers or people that uh, you 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 want people to know what they looked like and other things these people did. I mean, you, you've dug deeper and deeper and deeper into these different people. You know, the the, the director of photography, the camera people, screen. Writers versus the novelists, including ones who wound up not being part of the picture.
1: Right. I I don't know what to say about that other than when they asked me if I would do the show and I said yes, I I wrote uh, several sample scripts like this is what I would like to do and they approved them. And we recorded them and they said this actually kind of works. It was, it was never um, discussed. The length of time was never discussed. But I can tell you that it works because I'm on once a week, right? I mean, Noir Alley is on once a week. So it has become, interestingly, it has become sort of destination, what they call destination TV for people. It's like they want to watch it when it's on, as opposed to we're just going to record it and watch it whenever we feel like it. Because when the show, when they first gave me the show, it was on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern time. And I said, so who in the hell is going to watch it in California? It's 7 a.m. on a Sunday, you know? Nobody's going to be watching. And the fellow, Charlie Tabish, who was the head of programming, said to me, well, Eddie, the thing is, you know, nobody nobody really watches it when it's on anymore. They record it. If they're not just watching it all the time, which a lot of people do with TCM, right? It's on like 24-7 in some people's houses. But if it's something that they, they are determined to watch, um, even if it doesn't fit with their schedule, they'll just record it. But they found out that people wanted to watch it when it was on. So they put it on midnight Eastern time on whether you want to call it Saturday night or Sunday morning. It was midnight Eastern time, which meant nine o'clock on the West Coast, which is when Everybody that I know watches the show. Which is
0: interesting because I think a lot of people would be out whooping it up at those hours. Although maybe it's the people who've aged out of that, which is still an older demographic than Turner really wants, but uh, long term to sustain their network. But uh, because I rarely watch it at the times it's on, but I record it, watch it later, you know, sometimes even if you've already seen the movie a few times, your commentary is a crucial part of the film. Well, I I appreciate
1: you saying that, but of course you also have to realize that, um, so the show premiered in March of 2017, but by 2000, March of 2020, COVID had hit. And right. and COVID has been a, a major contributing factor to the success of the show because people didn't go out on Saturday nights for the past two years, right? They stay home and they want to watch something. And Jello, I cannot tell you how many people have contacted me and said, thank you for helping me get through COVID, because we we needed something to look forward to and we really anticipated watching the show every week, which is is fantastic, you know? And the other the other thing that was great was, and this was totally unexpected, was I, I heard from so many people who it was something they could do with their parents, right? Uh, because their folks are getting older. And so it wasn't just I was trying to get the younger demographic. I was actually getting both because it was something they could, like, I'll go and visit my mother or something who's 90 years old, blah, blah, blah. And then, uh, you know, she would tell me about seeing these movies when she was a kid. And now I'm into them and blah, blah, blah. And it was actually kind of kind of cool. You know, I know rock and roll is generally about uh, kill your parents. But but in in this case, it was it was a very nice way of people saying, you know, I I just had something in common with my parents that we could do together. So
0: this kind of points to uh, film noir itself. Do you or Turner or other people detect it becoming more popular with people, more and more fans or coming to it? Um, I th-
1: it think bro? so. I think so, because I will tell you that um, I don't know that this that I can prove this, but I will tell you that when I was early on in my conversations with TCM, one of the things that I said that I truly think got me the gig was I said, uh, you know, film noir is the gateway drug to classic cinema, because young people will they'll be into film noir they'll they'll dig it you know the style and the feel and the vibe and the smart mouth dialogue and all that stuff they'll feel all of that whereas they won't have the same reaction to a screwball comedy or a western or a musical or uh you know some for various reasons which we can certainly talk about film noir still connects with people in a way that other old movies don't and so so that was an important part of it, whether it's more popular than ever, I will say that it has been my that I have certainly seen as a as a quote unquote scholar of the film noir movement, which was considered dangerous at the time the movies were made. Uh, I mean, seriously dangerous, like a like artists blacklisted and imprisoned and all this stuff. Uh, whereas today, these things that were considered dangerous in their time are now comfort food for a lot of people because the society at large has moved so far beyond the the venal the the warnings about how venal we were nobody was nobody took them seriously so now we're totally corrupt and people watch these movies and say ah oh, remember when we weren't that corrupt and it's like Yeah, that's what they were trying to warn you
0: about in these movies. When the corrupt people actually went down and the justice system worked, which it kind of did with Watergate, but then Ford pardoned Nixon and let him walk. And that was the beginning of the end of justice working at that level.
1: Uh, Yeah. And I mean, I could tell you that, you know, if you, if you want, I mean, in the, in the original noir era, when these artists were being blacklisted and you, I mean, the line I like to draw is uh, look at who Joe McCarthy's counsel was, right? It was Roy Cohn And, and Roy Cohn was the guy who taught Donald Trump how to be Donald Trump. I mean, there's just no question about it.
0: He was the Trump family's attorney later on.
1: Yes, absolutely. He, he, uh, he totally, uh, you know, he defended Trump's father when he had the lawsuits about his, you know, being a slumlord in New York. And then that's when Trump learned, you know, no matter what happens, just declare that you have won. That was always Roy (laughs) Cohn's theory. Uh, you know, even, even if the the court decided against him, he would walk out and give an interview where he was saying, we won. Don't you understand? We won.
0: <laughs> and so people are like,
1: <laughs> like, why are you surprised, given that, that Trump behaved the way he behaved, losing the election, to turn around and say, no, we won. You don't understand. We won. He learned all that from Roy Cohn.
0: Well, there's another corollary with that with Trump, too, that people are just starting to dig into again, was people think Trump has no religion in him whatsoever because he worships himself so much and stuff. But he was raised in the church of that one time big TV evangelist from years ago, Norman Vincent Peale. His mega church was in Manhattan, and the Trumps were regular churchgoers and buddies with Norman Vincent Peale. Norman Vincent Peale officiated Donald and Ivana's wedding, but then refused to do the next one to Marla Maples on principle. And then I think Peel was dead after that. But the whole thing with Norman Vincent Peel was this power of positive thinking. Absolutely. You think positive and the Lord will bring you this, the Lord will bring you that, especially if you're bringing your mother to me, money to me, mm-hmm. maybe your mother too. I don't know, Freudian slip. <laughs> and that is that is a big part of Trump where they thats say that's part of the way he ticks, even now is he sees, you know, he said, Oh, think positive. This is going to work out in the end. I'm Donald Trump. I will never get busted on anything because I never go down because I'm so goddamn cool and privileged. And you know, the old Leona Helmsley line, only the little people pay taxes, only the little people lose in court. And I, in the end, I always win because I'm, you know, I'm such a winner. Blah, blah, blah.
1: No, I, uh, you're absolutely right and what all these all the people that Trump worships what they all have in common is their ability to it's almost like a mind control the ability to exert their influence over large groups of people which Norman Vincent Peale certainly had and other demagogues that we that we know yeah.
0: of right? oh no i mean and i don't know how far the religion goes or where Norman Vincent Peel was in like the Kingdom of Dominion, the Reconstruction Theories, the people who think that Armageddon and the end times are right around the corner. You know, the way people like Sarah Palin and even Reagan and James Watt, his first interior secretary, that famous quote, you want to drill and strip mine everywhere. What about, and clear cut, what about our children? Oh, well, by then we will have seen the second coming of the Lord. And there's lots of those people I could name for the next hour who are very, very powerful these days. What worried me with Trump, is he one of these two? He occasionally, gets so weird, I mean, when he was first threatening Kim Jong-un in North Korea and threat, browbeating, browbeating, browbeating before they suddenly, as he put it, fell in love. But I kind of worried, oh my God, is he trying to bring on the end times? Is he one of these believers and this is how he wants to do it and be seen as this guy who brought Jesus back in the second coming and all that? Luckily, that didn't happen. They fell in love. Who knows? Maybe they even bonded over the same crappy movies. I have no idea.
1: Well, I think there's always been an incredible, I mean, I haven't done this research, but I have a sneaking suspicion that historically uh, there are massive amounts of people in every generation who have a need to feel that they're on the cusp of Armageddon because somehow it makes their existence on Earth that much more important. You know, God, God forbid that people think like, I guess this doesn't really matter because I'm going to be dead anyway. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens next. But it's, I think far more people would rather think like my generation is the one that could conceivably end it all, you know, and, and quite honestly, there's a certain, there is a reality to that. Once they created the bomb, it's like, yeah, we actually can destroy ourselves. But then there's also a certain arrogance in it. Like, seriously, you think we're going to be the ones to do this? I think, I mean, it could get a whole hell of a lot. It's bad, Jello. It's bad right now. But it could actually get a whole hell of a lot worse before we see the end. Of
0: course, Israel gets more and more bad, more and more scary, and more and more of an autocracy. And Netanyahu's just making all these settlements legal when they were always illegal all these years. But the other people helping fund the settlers, many of whom were out of Brooklyn and stuff and are a particular strain of Jewish fundamentalists or even Jewish supremacists. The other main funding and main support for expanding, expanding, expanding the settlements is the hardcore fundamentalist Christian right in this country because they want that part of the Middle East rearranged Mm -hmm. exactly the way it would be for Jesus to come back. And Jesus is not going to come back unless... That whole area is annexed once and for all, and then we're going to get Jesus back. And then I asked people when I was isra- in Israel, what are the people doing this thing? Well, they just are happy to take their money. They just laugh at them because, of course, the evangelicals and some of the people really into this are the Huckabees, Mike Huckabee and Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's now governor of Arkansas and aiming higher. But uh, watch out for that one. kid; She's far from gone. Even though she gets more and more like a horror movie character when you look at her every damn year, just watching her get grumpier and grumpier and turn into a raccoon when she was Trump's press secretary was one thing, just one lie out of her mouth after another. But now she's trying to out Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, and it's all from a Christian supremacist then they say Christian nationalists white nationalists no these are supremacists and they uh, and and the people who are trying to get the get more and more of palestine and west bank taken and seized for jesus They also believe that, well, we're doing it for the Jews, but they're going to have to convert to our strain of fundamentalist Christianity when Jesus comes back or they're all going to go to hell. But right now, we love them because we need what we want to get out of them and stuff. like that. And so it's it's
1: all it's all like not to put too crude a point on it, but it's all like just gang warfare. I mean, all these people act like they're just gangsters annexing territory and like, we have control of this and we'll make a deal. But, you know, that deal doesn't count for anything because they're just going to stab yeah. you in the back. And no strangers to drive by shootings no, for sport. No, either. absolutely not. I mean, I that's what I always said about, it's funny, you know, when I, when Trump was elected, I made some comments on social media and, and I didn't regret it, but it was just like, I don't really want to spend the time dealing with this stuff. But I basically just said, well, you know, he's always been like a gang boss. I mean, that's his goal. He wants to be a gangster, you know, and he's not particularly good at it. He's somehow because he's rich and he fits the profile, he can get away with it. But he's not even a good gangster,
0: you know, and they'll never let him in the Manhattan high society and they will never let him know. He's never going to be a fully made gangster. Either. Even though the Trump family, including his ancestors, a crime family, the Kushners, a crime family, wedding of two crime families, you get an even bigger monster long term in the form of Jared Kushner. So on that cheerful note, part of the reason we like these noir movies, yes, part of the reason I watch or decide when I want to watch them at home or something is when I just want to plop down on the couch, zonk out, and flush away everything else raining down upon me and raining down upon all of us every single day. Yes, it is an escape into this other often black and white world or people look a certain way. And I can't tell you how many women I've known varying degrees of hardcore feminists and their beliefs. Then noir comes up, and the women are always so beautiful and stuff. So, there's that too. Oh, yeah. So, now we get to picking at that scab that you (laughs) knew we were going to get to sooner or later in the shadows. The elephant in the room is about to come into view. Not the real murderer, but the old question what is noir? (laughs) And of course, there's been entire documentaries about this. I just I saw one that was included with one of the Warner Brothers Noir DVD box sets where everybody from some of the big directors, Henry Rollins is on there. I think a Baldwin is on there. What is Noir? What is Noir? I think you're on it
1: too. Yeah, I'm on it too. Yeah, I know I know the I know the one you're talking about. Chris Nolan is in it and uh
0: yeah. 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 yeah.
1: And none of them quite
0: hit the nail on the head and i tried to think about uh because i've had to try and describe it to people sometimes too and i can't remember how i do it because i don't i don't really hit it on the head either so i'm about to rephrase the question that might help what makes noir so much fun
1: uh, wow, that's yeah, uh, okay. Yeah. That one I can easily answer. What makes noir so much fun is because it's seeing the the consequences of people's worst instincts, their their worst behavior, played out in these stories. I mean, and and that's why I sometimes call them like tales of karma or something. And and while not all noir is about self destructive protagonists, a lot of the best noir. That's t- that's totally what it is because it's basically one one of the important things about film noir is that Hollywood had finally matured <laughs> I use that word liberally it had matured to enough that it wasn't necessary for the protagonists to be the good guys or to be redeemed at the end of the stories right so it could just be like double indemnity. We're going to follow two kind of rotten people who who <laughs> fall in love and conspire to do this. And you know what? It can be extremely entertaining to watch that play out. So so that, to me, is an essential ingredient in film noir. It's like, oh, my God, this guy's not going to do this, is he? Because as I said, one at one point, commentary i did one of the earliest commentaries i did uh was for a film called born to kill and there's a point where claire trevor claire trevor finds a dead body in her rooming house in in reno and she doesn't she start. she picks up the phone and she's going to call the police and then she doesn't and it's like and i call that the noir moment like that was the noir moment in that film where she had the opportunity to do the thing that you're supposed to do, but she doesn't do it. And and that leads to all of these consequences. And that's what's great about these movies is because that is, right, isn't that the purpose of art is to show you things that are uncomfortable and that you you don't want to do this, but I want an artist to go there for me. I want the artist to be my surrogate, whether it's a writer or a director or a musician. It's like people want that avatar to to do it so they can experience it vicariously uh risk free. And and to me and that's yeah, always you, what what noir has been about. And you learn pretty fast
0: if you see enough of these Claire Trevor appears on the screen do not trust this person (laughs) something terrible is going to happen sooner or later because of her no matter how bubbly and charming she may be and all that there's one and the the, other thing that characterizes it is and this is mainly male protagonists uh, detour being a, a huge example the main person makes incredibly bad decisions Yeah, that everybody in the room yeah if I were in these I wouldn't, I would get away from that woman played masterfully by some of you called the meanest person in the movies before. And Savage. Somebody in the room says, don't do that. But of course they do. And major bouts of hell either break loose or unfold. And another one that maybe was evolved differently from what happened before World War II is. There was a lot of uh, before that. There was crime does not pay. Then film noir enters the picture. Oh yes,
1: it does. <laughs> uh, well, yes. I mean it, it. Well, okay. Here, here's my assessment of all of this. Film noir is an outgrowth of the depression in America, and I'm I'm speaking now of American. Noir. Film noir is totally an outgrowth of the depression because most of the great writers who created the template for for noir, whether it's Dashiell Hammett or James M. Cain or Cornell Woolrich or Horace McCoy or uh, other people like that, they were writing during the depression. And the depression was an era where people who didn't think they were capable of being criminals became criminals because of the economic pressure that they faced whether they were bank robbers or bootleggers or whatever they could be and when i say bootleggers i don't mean just the people running the liquor i mean the people operating the speakeasies and all this stuff who were otherwise normal people just trying to get by right so that's where american the american stories came from that then when you got the theatricality of the filmmakers who emigrated from Europe because they wanted to escape the Nazis, that's when you got this incredible combination. So you've got uh, the fall of the Weimar Republic in Germany uh, leading to the rise of the Third Reich and all of those artists because that whole Weimar Germany era just created incredible art. Uh, But then they had to all flee because you know, the fascists said, we don't want any of that. And then they were suddenly intermingling with these American voices who were telling this new kind of hard-boiled story with a new vernacular American speech. And and those two things, when they collided, really created what would become film noir, right? And I think the the impact of this is is still felt today. And and to me noir while it was an artistic movement that happened in Hollywood, uh I tend to think of it as more like an ethos if you will that it's like your view of the world is that we are fallen. We we are corrupt. <laughs> and and there's a there's a phrase I used in my book when I was talking about specifically about the work of Abraham Polanski, who was a uh, who was a blacklisted. He wrote Body and Soul and Force of Evil, and he said, um, or I said, in relation to his work, the challenge here is to live with dignity in a society where the cancer is inoperable. And and I yeah. really I really feel like that is kind of people who respond to noir I think can empathize with that observation. Oh, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. Somebody I normally
0: don't think much of had a great quote before we leave the uh, crime pays part was G. Gordon Liddy, who was quoted as saying to a group of juvenile inmates that they brought him in to speak to or juvenile something. I think it was in Estes Park, Colorado, maybe. At one point, he said, what do you mean crime doesn't pay? Of course, crime pays. Otherwise, there'd be
1: no crime. And he said it to them. Yeah, exa- exactly. I mean, let's face it, I mean, that's, we all grew up with that, you know, being told that honesty is the best policy. Crime does not pay and all that stuff. But, everything that happens in American culture will tell you otherwise, you know? So even
0: to the point of being pushed both in PE class and then into society at large, that Vince Lombardi quote, winning, isn't everything. It's the only only thing. thing. Yeah. It doesn't matter how you play the game. It's a winning, you got to win, win, win. We see how crazy and psycho this gets with people like Trump and so many others, but it also trickles clear down to, you know, You need to be aggressive. You need to get ahead. Therefore, it's okay to cheat on your exam in grade school if it gets you ahead. It's OK to erase somebody else's name off of an assignment they're supposed to do to get an A in the class and do it yourself, because then you will elbow yourself on top of them and stuff. Got to be aggressive, man. Got to winning through intimidation, that evil book in the 70s that laid all that out and stuff. It's, it's Lombardi, the ghost of Vince Lombardi.
1: No, I, but, I, uh, I, I totally hear you. And this is uh, this is the culture that we've created. You know, and and it is challenging. It is very challenging uh, to to maintain your equilibrium. Uh, I, I I would not want to be a twenty year old today. You know, I, I mean, I, I've, I I that's all I'll say on, on that score. Or the a
0: Twelve or an eleven year old, where it's even more dangerous. Where there you've got the social media that everybody's got to be on, and you're under this new pressure that you and I did not grow up with. You are who you advertise yourself to be. Everybody must market themselves. You gotta have the right Facebook friends. You can even alter your appearance a little bit digitally so you're more acceptable on Instagram or something. You all must market yourselves in order to have a friend.
1: Man, I I feel that, and I feel so fortunate that you know, Jello. Look, I'm I'm. 64 years old now, and I feel so grateful that I found my quote-unquote success, you know, uh, at this stage, and I'm just who I am, you know. And I mean, uh, TCM and, and the publishers who publish my books and everything, they accept me as I am. I don't have to create some other, you know, when you said, you know, I expected you to be in a suit or whatever. Yeah, I know. That's kind of a, I'm not going to say that's a character I play. It's just another aspect of my persona, one that I'm extremely comfortable with. But I, I, it's like, I, nobody writes the shit that I say, <laughs> you know, they pay me to say it. And it's like, I'm I'm so lucky because so many people don't have that where it's like, how do I, how do I get how do I work my game and tell me what you want and I'll do that. I don't, I don't have to do that. You know, I just do what I do and people accept it and it works out and it's fine. It'll, it'll fall apart at some point, but that won't matter to me. (laughs) You know, I I mean, I'm sure you kind of feel the same way, right? I mean, you, you, you've transitioned from being, you know, a punk, from you know uh, to to being something else now and well no I I realized
0: early on yeah I'm a punk rocker this is how I love annoying people plus it's the coolest music I've ever experienced in my life an opening came on where even I could get on stage without any having to pay your dues or this that and the yep. other suddenly you could be a Jim Morrison or an Iggy Pop or whatever. That they would not touch with a 10 foot pole, but suddenly there was this underground scene. And in early San Francisco, you had to be good, interesting on stage. And the pressure wasn't to be like all the other bands, it was to be different from all the other bands, because mm-hmm. most of the people in all the other bands was mainly the audience at that point. So you had to show people something they hadn't already known. And, you know, and because of my hippie phase, which was very hardcore, you know, first kid in the school to grow my hair in sixth grade, and got all kinds of bad stuff for that and things but I felt dangerous and I liked that Mm -hmm. and it meant you know you already think I'm weird and a misfit and whatever I don't like you either fine I'm gonna be me and fuck you and I like the music I like Not what the pop music people or the music teacher wants us to do all patriotic songs does. You know, I know what good stuff is, and I really, really, really like that stuff. And it makes me feel good, even if the lyrics are about very negative times during the Vietnam War. So... Yeah, I, mean, I, I so there, there's there's actually a song that addresses a lot of the stuff we've been talking about on Tea Party Revenge Porn, that last album I made with Guantanamo School of Medicine, which you have. I mean, if you don't dig the tunes, at least look at the lyrics because there's one called People With Too Much Time On Their Hands, which is my <laughs> opening salvo about people believing anything they see on the net and then spreading it, including yet another one oh. that Jello Biafra has died and stuff like that. And, and plus, you know, there's always been even before the maximum rock and roll lens and stuff, because, you know, as very volatile, politically militant artist in a very volatile scene, you know, from the get go, not everybody likes me. And that's just the way it is for I'm either not hardcore in that enough or I'm too political. And then Nazi punks fuck off and all the people who took offense to that wanted to kick my ass. And some of them did. You know, but 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 I always, even even in grade school and going into middle school and high school, you know, there was loneliness at times on one end. But I always had some really weird friends, lots of so-called freaks in Boulder, Colorado, because of professors' kids, scientists' kids, and whatnot. I even know them all. Instead of dear Jello, I'm the only weird person in my school in small town Indiana. I want to die and stuff. And I'm like, God, get out of town when you can. Things like that. I feel very grateful for that. It gave me a sense of, you know, there were parts of me that I really, really liked and it also prevented me from becoming a school shooter or something. With all the anger, the bigger one was that my parents were very anti-gun, and there were no firearms in the house or any weapons of any kind. I didn't grow up around. Them. Never had the skill to go run down and do something that's stupid or whatever. But don't, but don't so, you
1: don't you also think that in in our day when we were younger, it was necessary to go out into the public to experience new? Things like to go to a punk club or to go to a show or something. And I'm just, I'm wondering if it doesn't feel to me, I mean, you're more wired into this scene than I am, but it doesn't feel to me that that's as readily available to young kids anymore as it used to be, that they're like most of their time is spent online where they're not, they're not yeah. getting a full and it, and it real is, experience.
0: It, it is and it's not but there's people who make videos of themselves or do stuff in band cap, not to mention TikTok, of course, and that is how they communicate. I mean, we cannot dismiss the last several eras of digital kids who now are having their own digital kids on up to these new kids, dismiss them as ignorant or stupid. A lot of it is they learn things a different way mm-hmm. and their brains and the circuitry in there just works differently as a result I mean granted the children of the Reagan children have no morals whatsoever and a lot of them become the more aggro winning isn't everything it's the only thing techies who are slowly wrecking San Francisco yeah a lot of them are conservative libertarians who like to party and like drugs and if, and they like they like the outdoors so they're kind of environmentalists but otherwise and the, and maybe I'm generalizing because I know a lot of people Who are very technologically skilled, who are very decent and good people and visionary people as well, but they all know the other kind as well. So, um, on that note, uh, we're going to get back to what is film noir. (laughs) If somebody asked me, okay, what is film noir? and they have no idea what it is a visual reference Humphrey Bogart
1: uh I don't I don't know that film noir would exist without Bogart he was like the, the avatar he was the the single uh performer in Hollywood who sort of gave a a face but more than a face he gave an attitude to to noir uh that I think really popularized it with the public and and help the whole movement take off. And and I, I always call it a, uh, a movement because I think that's what it was. I mean, there was no reason that uh, these movies had to look and sound the way they did other than the artists themselves. There was appeal to the artists themselves and that's how they created uh, an actual artistic movement. It's like anything else, expressionism, uh, abstract art, pop art, op art, any of this stuff, it it all centers around what the artists themselves want to do. There there's, you know, and and like punk rock or anything. I mean, at a certain point you're doing it and it's very organic and it's what everybody wants to do. And then the guys with the money come in and start cutting up the pie and deciding who's going to make it and who's not and all that kind of stuff, which certainly yeah. happened with film noir. But I always thought of noir like punk rock. It was a very organic thing. It was like the the artists themselves made it happen. It wasn't a top-down thing where they said, now we need this, you know? No, nobody was asking for it. It just happened. And, and Bogart, uh, the avatar is the perfect word for
0: him being the gateway drug or at least to arouse the interest because everybody knows what he looked like, looks like in the present tense. You know, you you, you think of that era, you you think of him and a lot of people, oh yeah, that guy was kind of cool and they don't quite know why, but they probably saw one of his movies somewhere or just the face or whatever it's like okay yeah that's what i mean by noir it's it's that it's that kind of stuff that he was in maltese falcon big sleep and many more and even if they haven't even seen those like oh that kind of stuff detective movies Mm -hmm. whatever another thing that you've talked about before with noir pushing boundaries and breaking cinematic rules that, uh, you know, especially post-World War II, Double Indemnity was uh, during World War II, Mm -hmm. I do believe, when that came out. But, of course, in the very early 30s, Anything went, and the to some degree, I mean, risqué stuff. The the movies were pretty wild until people like the religious demagogues of the day, like Father Coughlin, who the Fairness Doctrine law—I wish we still had—was created specifically to put a stop to. And some of the other bigots like him, they also, of course, wanted more decency and, dare I say, family values in the movies. They didn't just on all these references and allusions to sex, let alone anything that actually hinted at it, off the screens in the towns that people saw. But suddenly, you could not portray a cop as corrupt. The police always had to prevail and be on the right side. Crime does not pay. The police must always turn out to be the good guys. And and of course, gangster movies... Yes, the police and justice triumphs over the bad guys. The gangster may not win on screen, but Cagney sure got bigger and bigger and bigger, although he was a talented musical star and a hell of a dancer, too. So oh, yeah. he had it all. He had it all. I'm a Yankee doodle dandy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got why would I want to watch that. It's because of Cagney. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Seeing him dance, and I had no clue he even could do that. Tell us a little bit about just how insane the censorship was back then. where even married couples had to sleep in separate beds right. with a table in the middle of it because you wouldn't have any interest in sex right. or anything like that. It
1: wasn't it was the Hayes
0: Office? The production. Uh, it
1: was office. called the, It was called the Hayes Code, uh, but. There was actually a production code in place in Hollywood uh, that was largely ineffectual. Because before 1934, uh, from the end of the silent era through the first few years of talkies, uh, movies were pretty uh, risqué. Not all of them, but you could do more salacious material. Uh, They were very, very sexy. Uh, and then you know, parts of America rebelled and said, "This is this is not what we need our children to see." And blah blah blah. And then they reinforced the production code in 1934, and they put a guy named Will Hayes, who was the Postmaster General of the United States. They gave him this cushy job, being the head of the production office but it was really just uh you know that was a glorified position for him it actually ended up being a guy named joseph breen who was the head of the chief center in hollywood and the production code administration office became the arbiter of what was allowed on screen and what wasn't and yeah all all that stuff that you just said was was Completely accurate. The, the Catholic Legion of Decency was really the power behind the Breen office. Beyond just, you can't show, you know, they didn't want a lot of violence, they didn't want graphic sex, any of that kind of stuff. But as you pointed out, it did lead to some incredible things. Like, not only can't crime pay, But like husbands and wives do not actually sleep in the same bed. Uh, So this is setting back American maturity (laughs) Uh, decades, right? Like, how, how does that work? Like men and women don't actually sleep together. Uh, and they certainly yeah, are. It, 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 how do they have the kids, you know, and all this kind of it,
0: stuff? It, and it did go on for decades in some forms that kind of still do, even daily life. One of my favorites is when they were shooting Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, you know, that amazing movie of the Tennessee Williams play with Paul Newman and Elizabeth Taylor looking better in a slip than anybody you'll ever see in your life. <laughs> before finished, to the point where a specific person, maybe from that office or what succeeded it, came on the set. And that person's official title, as I understand it, was the bust inspector. <laughs> and yeah. he even picked up a ladder and got on top of the ladder to look down the cleavage in the slip to make sure it wasn't too risque. And you knew what the guy had this job really did all. Of course.
1: You of know, course.
0: it's a who, who, who at TSA who pulls people's bags over to see if he can play with somebody's underwear and see what's in this one, so, or grope this, grope that. You know, you know the drill. Which he was...
1: Which at that point, Jello, all that was nonsense. It was just placating the production code office because in reality, every script had to be submitted in advance to the office and all of the mm. the costume designs and everything were submitted to the office for approval, right? But what they did, like one of my favorites was uh, a film from the early 50s called Pushover with Kim Novak. It was the first movie that Kim Novak ever ever made. And they submitted the production, uh, her wardrobe sketches were submitted to the Breen office and they were all approved because the sketches showed her completely covered up, right? Like high collared stuff. And and they're like, okay, so this is all okay. But those sketches didn't show what the blouses were actually made out of. And- (laughs) When she makes her first appearance on screen, she is so obviously not wearing a bra, but you only noticed it after the movie was made, and and nobody really checked after the fact. Every Everything in the Breen office was done to prevent stuff from being made, but once you actually had circumvented the office and made it, there wasn't much they could do about it right at, at least visually if it was language or something like that they could they could ask you to cut it out of the film you know well the story is that the bust
0: inspector wouldn't leave until Liz Taylor's cleavage was covered up and the curves were not quite so obvious and so they put a brooch on top of the line so they couldn't see any of the cleavage or anything. And then as soon as the bus inspector left, they took it back off again and rolled film. Yeah. And that was the last of that. But then, you know, it, it still goes on to this day where pe- people are all just all up in arms. Now, now one of them is breastfeeding. Oh, my God, you can't feed. Your- we love that your family values and having babies, but we don't want to see the babies. We don't want to see the babies nursing. Why are you not buying fake formula in a bottle and ramming that into? them? You're actually breastfeeding. People are breastfeeding at work. We can't boss do something or they breast. <laughs> feeding on the bus. They're breastfeeding on the train. They're breastfeeding at the mall. They're breastfeeding on the plane. Call Tipper Gore. Call Ron DeSantis. Call Moms for Liberty and bring your goddamn guns. We can't have this. new. No. It'll groom somebody to not be... So We can't groom them instead to be a bunch of right-wing Nazi nuts who never get laid.
1: But, uh, I mean, I'm sure you remember... I mean I'm actually old enough now to remember like when when the code was sort of broken you know there there were films in the 1960s that finally busted the production code, you know, it, it, like the pawnbroker and stuff like that. They had they had to be very, very serious movies where nudity or bad language or something like that was allowed in the film because the subject matter was serious, you know, and uh, it was all just inevitable. I mean, my attitude, I always, I, I love the films, the noir films that I show because I love seeing the creativity of the filmmakers circumventing the production code, like how they could get the point across, even though it wasn't allowed to be shown or spoken or any of that stuff. Um, I find that all absolutely fabulous. And, you know, I'm a big, you know, the thing is, I think I have good taste and I appreciate restraint, but yet you can't dictate this stuff because everybody's idea of what, what restraint is and what good taste is. It is just, you know, doesn't matter. I mean, I like a I like a good bloody horror movie, but then I, I will quickly identify the ones that I think are really well done and the ones that are just gross and exploitative and yeah, not yeah. worth anything, you know? But how do you, how, you know, everybody's taste is different. I don't know how you...
0: Splatter for Splatter's
1: sake has not been my favorite. N- no, a- absolutely not. But But then every so often you'll that's see a film that's movie. really kind of unsettling and off-putting and a little bloody or something and it's like wow that was a trip i re- i that was good you know there was an intelligence behind the film
0: uh, that was pretty obvious it looks like we're going to be heading to part three. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh don't go anywhere and that means you eddie